an entrance. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Hi guys, sorry. Hi, yeah, how you doing? Pretty well, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad, not too bad. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. It feels weird not to see you kind of like, it, I, I had the impression before that you were kind of squeezed on a camper bed with headphones on. Uh, yeah, that, that's <laughs> true. I was um, sequestered to the bedroom, basically. Yeah. Uh, now I've got the office, so uh, I've been upgraded tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. How, how, are you, how are you getting on generally? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, if you don't mind I me mean, saying, you look like you put a little bit of weight on. <laughs> put a little bit of weight on. Is that because you stayed indoors? <laughs> Yeah, Simon's not used to um, what I like to call, even though he's as English as Queen Victoria's underwear, I, I have a certain candor about me, which he doesn't appreciate. I, I like to call it honesty. <laughs> but I think it's because I, I'm assuming, you know, the last time we spoke, um, we had about 12 minutes of freedom since then. And we've all just been locked in. And, uh, and yeah. uh, how are you getting on with it? Well, actually, I've probably, so the thing is, I've put on weight and then took it back off. <laughs> so I haven't, I apparently haven't taken it all back off yet. I put on a lot of it. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Listen, I, um, I, I weigh 17 and a half stone. I'm in no position to be 10. <laughs> no, I'm not being sensitive about it, uh, but it's just, it's just interesting because it, from my, I know like how much I weighed when I talked to you guys last yeah, yeah. and I'm definitely heavier, but because I, I was much heavier in my mind, I'm like, huh, I suppose I am heavier than when I saw. Oh, really? I, I thought I thought you had the whole emaciated look of, of a philosopher, to be honest. I, I, I think last time. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, can I be honest with you? Um, I'm going to go slightly off piece because we're going to come back to the boring stuff, and Simon will talk in a minute. But um, one of the things I've been mostly missing um, about lockdown is my travels. And um, if I'm mm. being honest, I have a strange divorced miss like um kind of um estranged relationship with america because before lockdown like about 80 18 16 months before that i traveled from the east coast to the west coast and now <laughs> what i do is um about every fourth day my wife will walk into the front room and i'll go do you remember austin and she, yeah. <laughs> and she says, yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and we'll talk about the smallest thing ever, like going to a yoga studio in the middle of Austin. And, um, and, and, and I really miss America. So that's where I'm at with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same for us. We used to travel a lot, especially because right before the lockdown, I lived in Amsterdam, Alice lived in London. And so we were always going back and forth between those two. She traveled a lot for work and I tagged along and traveled enough on my own. So we were kind of happy when we moved to, Livington Spa to kind of be together and to mm. slow things down a little bit. And then the pandemic hit. And at the beginning, it was like, actually, this is great. You know, we can kind of catch our breaths. And then like a month <laughs> later, we kind of look around. And we're like, OK, maybe well, a little bit more. Throat. Yeah. And now we're yeah, now we're going crazy because we we just we miss the traveling, too. Have you ever, have you planned for when lockdown finishes? Are you, are you got not plans? really. The, the interesting thing is because we're Americans, uh, we're allowed to go back to the U.S. Mm. And so we will probably go um, late spring, early summer to visit our families. Our families have been vaccinated and they'll be in the U.S. So, um, yeah, Alice is also, she has dual citizenship, so she's also British. So then she, on that passport, can come back here. I might have a little bit of a hard time getting back. (laughs) (laughs) Whereabouts are you going back to America? Uh, well, she, her parents and her family uh, are in Chicago, and I'm from Nebraska, so Nebraska. we'll go to both places. Yeah. Cool, cool. So that'll be nice. I my hope is to go to Scotland. I like to do backpacking and some climbing and stuff. So that's what I'm. Really Have you been to Scotland before? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I went last time between the lockdowns, uh, and it was great. And yeah. I haven't been before that too, but that was my first time. Stu, uh, Stu, well um, Stu, why don't you tell Ben how you're actually Scottish? Because you don't talk about that an awful lot. I spend most of my um, working hours <laughs> talking about being Scottish. My dad's from the, the fair city of Edinburgh. And um, I, <laughs> when I was in a band before I was a useful member of society, oh, really? um, I toured Scotland several times and um, I love it. And every time I drive into Edinburgh via the Ring Road, um, I feel like I'm driving home. I say that at least twice a day. Yeah. I, I'm so, you know, Americans have this habit of saying, like, if they have some Irish or Italian ancestry, of course they, they do. say, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous, but my ancestry <laughs> is is Scottish. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I uh, noticed the kinship between you and me almost immediately. Exactly. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. it's coming through. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was a kid, when I was like seventeen, my family lived here for a year, and my parents had good friends that lived in Aberdeen, so we spent quite a bit of time up there. I'm sorry about that. I well. mean, that's not. A... <laughs> it's a. Yeah, we were there in the summer and they do quite a bit to try to make up yeah. for the stone in the summer. And so yeah. that was okay. But then we went back like any time outside of yeah, the yeah. middle of summer, basically. And it was like, oof, this is great. Yeah, it's still like the architecture is still pretty, but it's yeah. just gray from the grass to the sky. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Brilliant. Lovely to catch up with you. You're right, Sai. How's it going? <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. I was actually reflecting on um, your both of your stories of travel back and forth, and I, and I was empathising in a lot of ways. My wife, uh, every fourth day, I looked at my wife and I say, "Do you remember Bridlington? <laughs> <laughs> remember Scarborough?" See, see uh, I think a major point of contention we have a lot in our relationship, me and Si, um, or as I like to call it, marriage. We have we have a lot of points of contention. One of them is travel. Now. I, when I grew up, um, when everyone went to university in the early 2000s, when I did, it was like such a, such a, an intellectual faux pas to say you you travelled because you you were basically just a cretin, an absolute cretin. You went to Vietnam for six months, claimed you were doing something, found yourself, you came back, and then went to work at a bank or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I kind of discovered traveling later on in life, as in like global traveling, like, you know, I've spent a summer in Japan, I've spent a summer in America, been around a lot of Europe and stuff. But Simon, Simon's similar to, um, to like kind of a life form that you find congealing in a gutter somewhere. Like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't like anything outside of his street. It's peculiar. And I keep saying to him that he should travel. And one day when, I'm sure when he's old and gray, I'll, I'll drag him to, you know, a lovely beach in Spain and he'll kind of grimace, you know, and go, yeah, I suppose it's all right or whatever. But um, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't, philosophically, how do you feel? How do you feel philosophically? How do you feel about travel, Benjamin? I mean, I think it depends on your taste for novelty, probably. That, that's what I like about travel. <laughs> Don't play to him. <laughs> no, but well, I mean, that's what I like about it. So for me, I like things that are exotic and different. And, you know, this is a weird thing to say, but one of, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to go to the grocery store and to see all the different kinds of breakfast cereal that I could have that we didn't normally buy. <laughs> Simon still does that. that. Was like Simon fun. still does that. But there are people who want to only eat the same breakfast cereal every day. And to them, <laughs> that kind of choice and that novelty is like, why would you want that? And it can even be overwhelming, right? Yeah. And I think if you have that attitude more generally, more broadly in your life, then travel is not going to be exciting and it's just going to be stressful. And I think even people who really like novelty still like to kind of cozy up at home and still have some kind of a home base. For me, 
I'm, I enjoy traveling more when I feel like I have somewhere settled to come back to. Mm. So I didn't enjoy traveling as much when I was a student because everything is in flux. Then. Yeah, kind and, of transitive, yeah. And for me, that's too, too, too much kind of movement. In my and being life. a student's a novelty anyway, in, in a way. Exactly. There's a lot of new experiences in that case. So sometimes you just want the familiar. And, you know, but the thing is, the, the thing that strikes me is there's an awful lot of mundanity around traveling. And then all of a sudden you find yourself up a mountain in Osaka. And, you know, for want of a better phrase, like I feel touched. Mm. And, and it, it, it touches something inside of me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own jokes here. Um, it, it, it does something to me. And then I'm forever like 0.0001% different forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm kind of on a journey to be 1% different in everything that I see. Simon, <laughs> I, I'm well aware that we're kind of talking about you, not to you. Um, but I, 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 there's something like, like I, I respect you very much, but there's something British about not wanting to travel. And there's something American about not wanting to travel as well. Because Simon, one thing you always yeah. say to me is how few Americans have passports. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, that, that's one of one of the one of my regular phrases when you're talking about. <laughs> um, and and I, it's, it's interesting actually. I think Ben Ben's sort of hit hit the nail on the head there. Um, I have a favourite meal that I have um, if I'm celebrating something, and it, it's old El Paso fajitas, and 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 I make them exactly the same way, with exactly the same ingredients in exactly the same portions. Yeah. Um, because I know through trial and error, so through some level of novelty, but I know that that is the pinnacle for me of, of culinary delight. And yeah. I, I'm gutted that it is. And I've been and I've, I've eaten, this, this will surprise you, I've eaten in Michelin star restaurants. Yeah, it doesn't surprise and, me. It, what surprises me is that A, you'd pay for that and B, like what a wasted experience that is. <laughs> yeah, I, restaurants I describe as big plate little food. Which tells you of my 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 palate. Anyway. But, <laughs> it, but, it's like actually, living with Schrodinger's cat. You you are like it's unbelievable. But but actually, this is the thing as well. It's like my favourite place on planet Earth is Nairsborough in <laughs> in Yorkshire. Um, I I think it's beautiful, and there's something about it which is absolutely stunning. Which which uh, you know to use your your wonderful phraseology touches me um and and actually even when i'm there there's a sense of actually there's that sense of base there's that sense of home there's that sense of because I'm, I'm a yorkshireman there's there's the yorkshire phrase that we have as well that we like what we know and we know what we like um maybe that's again a bit reductive i was interested actually ben when you were talking about actually enjoying travel when you know you've got a home base mm. um, i was actually thinking actually in terms of football um, and uh, not to, to, to shoehorn this in, but the that's a beautiful thing. Is, lovely, is, lovely stuff. Is the difference between league games and like tournament games, yeah. And and the teams where the fans are like, oh, let's let's really go for it, and let's have our team go for it in the tournament. Let's 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 get ourselves a trophy. I genuinely, generally, the teams that are safe where they are, they're they're not in danger of like trying to win the league they're not in danger of being relegated and so almost like they've got this like safety of home yeah but actually maybe with that there is that sense of mundanity of like oh will we be eighth or will we be seventh um you're not talking about being first or last and so it's like well let's let's almost travel let's let's have a, a bit of fun with the league cup let's have a yeah. bit of fun with the fa cup and that that, that sort of thing 
It's because it, it, there's that sense. I think, from my personal perspective, bringing it back to travel, I I just love home. I think I and, and actually, I, I my my novelty becomes to what can I bring in to to what's here. And and I guess maybe as a football fan for Leeds United, particularly <laughs> our team, we've never been that safe, have we? So <laughs> so we go out, we crash out of pretty much every tournament within the third round, which is quite low down. Yeah. But we're all like, oh, that's great. That's brilliant. We don't have to worry about it. I mean, the tournaments are a way of raising the stakes, right? When you don't have, when there aren't really stakes to play for. If you're going to fall, if you're going to fall in the middle of the table, then, you know, at a certain point, the, the matches don't even, I mean, they matter to you because as a supporter, you're watching that match, but they don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, because if you're finishing seventh or eighth or 10th or fifth, even in, in that range, it just doesn't, it's not a huge difference, basically. No one remembers, people remember who get relegated. It's pretty easy to remember that. They're playing in a different league. People remember who wins because they, they won or who yeah. almost won or who was in a position to win but then messed it up. That's one, two, three, four, right? But, you know, all the way down to from five to the people who are in danger of being relegated, people don't really remember unless they're the kind of people who remember how their club's finished every year that kind of a person but they don't remember for other reasons why they finished where they did do you think that sort of links to sort of the it, you mentioned about stakes but i also think i think time plays a bit of a factor in this as well and i think philosophically this is an interesting sort of thing to, to think about for, for me as, as a football fan because ultimately it's all meaningless um ultimately yeah. i've actually got nothing to do with it but actually when I think about the the link between holidays and traveling, this is can I say that, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, what you're thinking of is like you want to maximize every single second, don't you? Because actually, you know, you're not Stu. You weren't going to be living when you tell me about the food that you were eating in some backwater in the deep south of America um, that that sort of blew your mind. Yeah. It, it must have blown your mind in some ways because you know there's a very real possibility that you'll never ever go back there and eat that food again and so in that precise moment at that time there there is a very unique um sort of temporal sort of moment and experience that that actually you you want to hold on to but at the same time you know it's going to be fleeting i think of tournament football that it, that brings that sense of of actually you've got you've got this one game that if you lose this game, you're out. The stakes are much higher. It's this one time major thing. You know, if you, every round that you get to that takes you that little bit closer to the summit, there's that sense of almost being on that, that trip or being on that travel because it's like, well, this could be taken away and, and will be taken away in, in relative moments. That actually you don't get the sense of that with the league. You don't, don't get the sense of that with, with home, maybe. I don't know if, if that's something that, that, that's sort of worth pondering. Well, I mean in league play, you can always make up, well, not always, but you can often, especially early in the season, you can make up for a loss, right? Hmm. So the, the, if it's a single elimination tournament, I mean, oh, you can't make that up. Every match matters. Towards the end of league play, every match matters or, or no match matters. I mean, if there's nothing that you can do to the worst case scenario, you're 11th, best case scenario, you're 8th, then it doesn't matter. Right. And so at that point, especially late in the season, 
for some teams, these matches are as exciting as tournament play. For other teams, nothing is going on in these matches. And so tournament play becomes an exciting alternative where the matches suddenly have much higher stakes, right? And for the teams who, who already have high stakes because they're at the top or the bottom, tournament play feels like a distraction, right? Because you feel as a, well, you, you think that the players should be concentrating on league play. As a supporter, you're, you feel like you need to concentrate your positive energy to league play to help avoid relegation or to, to help them win, right? So that's probably part of where it's coming from as well. My, my, my feeling, I have a slightly different point of view. I kind of feel like there's a kind of vitality to, to something that, you, 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 that your tiny little life doesn't even touch. And so when we were going through America and stuff, and, and it didn't have to be New York or LA or anything like that, it can just be like, again, like regular life. But I feel like there's this kind of like streak of like vitality of life. And I'm very far away from it now because I'm sat in, in, a, in a study in a know nothing place in the middle of a dull country. But it's almost like you touch something, you get, you get close to something and then you're kind of in the middle of it. And like, I had that sensation in so many places in America and not just because of the glitz and the glamour, but like this sense that you're part of something vital and then you kind of move back out of it again. And so you go towards this orb of like energy and it's incredible and you know, it's, it's about time. It's about this really small time. And I'm like, I've got to suck this all in, whether it's culture, whether it's experience, whether it's other people, I've got to experience as much as possible because I know I'm going to fade away from it. And so that for me is what travel is. And I guess if we're making the tenuous link towards tournament football, <laughs> then I think that's the same thing, isn't it? Because you're this middle of the road club. No, no, even like your big clubs don't celebrate really winning pissy cups. They don't. No, they don't care. They couldn't care less. They put their second team out for the vast majority of the tournament. And if they get through, it's like whatever. But your first division team it's their chance to come near that kind of orb of energy and be a part of that spotlight and feel something different and spectacular and, and possibly even a chance for them to stand out and be noticed. And then they disappear back to the crap that they're kind of like dealing with on, the, on a day-to-day -day basis until they get that opportunity to come close to it again. So it is about time. Um, I don't want to keep pushing the travel thing because it is, it's not what we're here to talk about. Okay, so um, Ben, listen, um, since the last time we spoke to you, like they're like, We've been in tumult, I think you could say. I think it's um, uh, we've been thrown and cast asunder by the footballing gods. We've had great times. We've had not so great times. But all <laughs> of the things we spoke to you about before um, have kind of really like bubbled to the surface. We spoke to you a little bit about, before about justice in football. We spoke to you about um, fairness, we, you know, all these kind of abstract concepts. We spoke to you about VAR. And I think what we want to do is kind of almost do like a refresher on those things and kind of say, right, you know, I, I'm not sure how much football you watch. I'm almost positive it's nothing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you are an honorary <laughs> Leeds United fan. But we won't talk just about Leeds United. We'll talk about um, football as a rule. There, there's a bit of a um, albatross around the throat of football at the minute, which is VAR. What, what are you drinking, by the way? Because that looks that looks glamorous. This is a Manhattan. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I come in with mine? Mine was Dirty the beaker uh, of soiled water versus. I, I can tell you what, it was. It was uh, genuinely after that Manhattan. It was a Vimto Zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the the big talking point in football at the minute has been for the best part of the, you know, since the the season kicked off, 
has been VAR. Simon, what does VAR stand for? A video assistant referee. Perfect. You learn something new every day. And so what's happened is that people's, that there's been a general discussion and a general falling out about what constitutes offside um, and what constitutes a timely interaction with the rules of the game to allow that to recall. So let me just give you a couple of examples. They've now grown attuned to drawing graphs of people's body movements as they happen. So a goal will be scored and then they take a still, a still frame from that moment and they will literally draw a line across the pitch and up to people's kind of limbs to say, that is quite clearly offside. Here is the onside and here is the offside, which has obviously given birth to a whole bunch of conversation about if your elbow is offside, then is that offside at all? Because you can't score with your elbow. So even if you're flailing your arm like this in an offside position, it shouldn't really matter because that part, of, if the ball hits you on that part of your body, then it's, it's not, it goes against the rules anyway. Um, the other thing as well is um, they've ever so slightly adapted the, offs, uh, the, um, the offside rule so that they keep on playing for a certain amount of time and they don't raise the flag immediately to call offside. And that has resulted in some really unfortunate things happening. People being very, very badly hurt. Um, because they just carried the play. A good example was last night, um, there was two teams playing and they carried on, even though it was offside and they were going to pull it back, they carried the play on because their, their rationale is, well, if the team attacking gives the ball away, then it falls back onto the advantage of the team that might want to advance. It, and they don't have to blow the whistle, the play just kind of carries also, on. Also as well, it, it removes the human element from it. And that's yeah, yeah, quite interesting to look at. So they play it on, just in case they've made a mistake, yeah, yeah, and, and the VAR can can sweep in. So last night, two teams were playing, and they didn't put the flag up for offside. And as a result, a defender ran into his own goalkeeper, which has ended up with, I think, a partial fractured fractured skull type thing, and it's really bad. Um, so machinery and rules and humans and and also the players now are starting to react to all of those things as well and they're starting almost there's a sensation that they're starting almost to be coached in how to manipulate yeah. and uh, and do those things so simon in his usual insightful and erudite manner is going to now pose a couple of questions to you about that philosophically yeah so so i i guess with, with that as the context my feeling is is with with VAR is I think the first question is 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 VAR actually a neutral concept and would you see it philosophically as a neutral concept and actually the the pressure lays upon the rule makers to make rules that are now adapted to this new VAR reality that we have and the second question really is morally speaking is there anything wrong with coaching players to follow the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Right. So I think that these two things go together. The first thing that comes to mind when you talk about the complications uh, that VAR is introducing into the game and into kind of how play flows uh, is Wittgenstein, actually. <laughs> and so 
Wittgenstein has kind of two phases. There's early Wittgenstein and there's later Wittgenstein. He's kind of broken up into these two parts. And early Wittgenstein was interested in how language fits with the world and how we kind of um, can logically understand how language works. Um, and it was very precise and very um, analytic. I mean, this is kind of the beginning of analytic philosophy. And he thought that in the Tractatus, uh, which was his first work, that he'd solved all the problems of philosophy. Then he went away, didn't do philosophy for a while, and then he came back. And probably after talking to uh, someone called Frank Ramsey, but other philosophers as well, he began to be dissatisfied with his early work. And so he had the Philosophical Investigations, which is his later work, a book that covers his later work, and that's later Wittgenstein. And both of these made huge contributions to philosophy. Wittgenstein is ranked with Kant and Hume and Aristotle and Plato and all of the great philosophers, except for he's almost contemporary for us. I mean, he's a, a 20th century philosopher. So that's, that's the background. One of the things that Wittgenstein says in his later work is a repudiation of the kind of precision that you find in his early work. And there he's concerned with what it means to follow a rule and how rule following is supposed to work. And uh, without going into too much detail, he's concerned that we can't ever fully specify all the rules of a game. So we can try to be more and more precise, but that's really not going, it's never going to be possible to specify all the rules up front. And so that's one of the, the issues here, right? Is that we used to have an intuitive and rough idea of how offsides worked, but now, because we have more precise measurement tools, we want to have a more precise notion of offsides. And so we're precisifying it. But of course, this is raising other complications for how, how precisely we really want to, to set the parameters here, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, now, another practical issue has to do with how this interrupts the flow of play, right? So one thing that you hear when people talk about football proper compared to American football <laughs> is that uh, football is a beautiful game because it flows nicely. I mean, not only because, but, but partially because it flows nicely. And you have people, I mean, when, when the ball goes out of play, for example, then there's no like stopping, adjusting officials coming up. The other team just grabs the ball, throws it in and goes, of course, American, American sport will never be described as beautiful. It can't be because you don't play it for more than 10 seconds at a time. So yeah, you need you need a period of time, and as a result, you need mistakes, and you need genius, you need excellence, and that needs time. That's right. I mean, I think the closest American sport comes, at least the main sports, is probably basketball. Mm. I think because you can get some nice plays there. But there's something about basketball. Basketball is actually, in many ways, similar to football, right? I mean, so you're trying to get the ball. It's the same kind of a thing into some kind of goal at the end of either side after you score the other team immediately takes the ball back out and moves on there's quite a bit of a flow in basketball not as much as football for sure right but that's as close as it comes and i think basketball is more beautiful because of that um, mm. and the least beautiful american game might be baseball because it's very slow yeah and the pitches are very kind of punctuated every pitch stop yeah. throw it back try again anyway this is this is a dig digression <laughs> Um, but that the, the effect on the aesthetics of the game, I think, is an important issue, right? So there's the playing on because 
might be a mistake and maybe they needed to continue playing. That's some rationale, but I suspect that part of the reason they allowed them to play on is so that people won't feel this interruption, which is aesthetically unappealing in football. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, and then the, the last thing that you mentioned is the strategizing in response to uh, this, right? So teams are now becoming more sophisticated. They're now developing strategies for dealing with these new or more precise rules around offsides. And I think that that's natural. Of course, you're going to look for any kind of competitive competitive advantage that you can especially when it's you know highly professionalized and very elite play i mean this is what you get out of uh kind of data analytics and and all these kinds of things in professional sports now is that any edge that you can get can be incredibly lucrative and if they can come up with strategies around this uh, change to the to the game that other teams haven't thought of yet they're going to have a competitive advantage so certainly i see why they do it um, but I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that they're at fault for doing it, I would say. I think that we should allow the game to be a little bit sloppy. Um, we should allow for this kind of human element. But I'm, and, so, and so I think that when the introduction of technology makes the game worse and doesn't aesthetically and in terms of our enjoyment of watching it. And it doesn't clearly increase the fairness of the playing field because some teams are now able to exploit uh, new strategies around this VAR software or the introduction of VAR. I don't see what the gain is because it's not leveling the playing field necessarily. Mm -hmm. And yet it's leading to a decrease in the aesthetic enjoyment of the game. Mm. I'm not opposed to technology full stop. So if you have technology that is measuring whether or not a goal was actually scored, right? So sensors around the goal. I don't really see that interrupting the game. It is a more precise way of ruling whether or not a goal was scored in a way, but it doesn't interrupt the flow of the No, and we've had that for a while. We've had, what happens is the referees have this like buzzer on their belt. And if the ball crosses the line, it buzzes. But there have been mistakes with that. Actually. What's really interesting about that is that that technology has been around well before VAR and has yeah. been relatively uncontroversial. Yeah. But the lack of the controversial element of it has meant that the single mistake that it has made yeah, yeah. Um, blew up massively. Yeah. Um, so it made it made a single mistake, and the consequences yeah, and it, of it, it was actually, actually quite... a really important mistake as well because it was at the tail end of last season, and a team needed to. Uh, to score in order to stay out of the relegation zone. And there was clear photographic evidence that, um, is it, uh, Simon, remind me, the ball didn't cross the line, did it? Uh, no, it, it, no, it, it didn't. But it didn't it was, cross the line at um, all. Clear photographic evidence to show that half the ball was, was, not, was not over the line. Um, but the referee did it. And there was some lame excuse afterwards that, I know he's had his missus vibrator in his pocket or something. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, but actually, like the interesting thing with that was um, not Simon, that Simon doesn't like references to sex. It's, it's, um... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's not that at all. It, it was actually that it was that was a a one hundred and ten million pound mistake. Yeah, yeah. Because one club um, over that over the next three years would have lost out on that amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that that carries. Um, that, that never made a mistake over that. Both frozen. So, I mean, the, 
even though that's a huge mistake, that if it, it still has the question, you can't just look at it in isolation. You have to look at the technology compared to what would have happened without it. Would there have been more mistakes like that, right? So of course that's really unfortunate. Of course we want to fix that mistake with the technology, but um, what would have happened if we relied, how many mistakes would there have been? But what's was- interesting about that is that there's almost like a, um, there's almost like a relativity to that, where when we have these highlight clips from the 60s and 70s, people kicking 10 shades of shit out of each other and all the rest of it, and the goals and the magnificent goals, but the, we look forward to watching the highlights of the complete mistakes and saying, can you believe that happened? Especially if it's for your team. Um, um, I feel like there's a legacy in the sport in which like mistakes is mistakes are as much a part of football as yellow cards are and 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 painting lines on the pitch like if you don't have mistakes you've, you've not got football like because that's what people talk about in pubs as simple as that that's yeah. why people are allowed to have opinions there's a real banality around football at the minute where the, the crowd are talking on social media they're talking 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 and it's become obsessed with data do you know that we completed 67.4% of uh, passes in the last match? We should have won. And so the idiocy, excuse me, Simon, like, I don't know if we're actually isolating people from, from, from listening to this podcast, but um, the idiocy from, from the crowds are actually, is actually turning into what they think is kind of like intellectual rigor. And, it, it, and it's kind of like turned into, we lost 4-0, but um, our keeper made seven saves. Can you believe it? It's like, well, actually... The only thing that matters is how many goals you score and how many goals they don't score. So, and and so it, I believe that for me, like the reason why there's such a to do about it is because mistakes. For me, I watch match of the day. I watch highlights because I want to see a foul that wasn't given that led to a goal that won. I want to see that. that that's 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 part of it. I don't want to see clean football. I don't want to see a practice match. I don't want to see training. I want to yeah. see incidents. I mean, the interesting thing is that. In the limit case, right, if we could account for everything and everything was known up front, there would be no point in playing. If we <laughs> knew which team was better down to every, you know, yeah, yeah. piece of atomic evidence, then we would just know that the team would win. Now, there's randomness that enters, right? So there's a wind gust that comes in or the temperature rises or there's a mistake by the officials or something like this that, that makes the kind of outcome of play indeterminate. And of course, not knowing which team is actually better, right? But if we knew, if we could eliminate all randomness and we knew exactly the skill levels of this team and that team, mm. then without randomness, the better team would win. Mm. And that's just not interesting because that <laughs> removes the excitement of watching the play to see what happens, right? So in the case, is- it's no fun. Do you think that there is a case in point that with any kind of like structure that's so centered around capitalist ends and the kind of power structures, even within football, there is a power structure that has to be maintained. There's almost Mm -hmm. like this kind of Marxist kind of like hierarchy of these billionaire clubs have to remain being billionaires and this club that pays their players wages at a tenth of the prices of the rest of it. it has to stay rigid it has to stay like that because we're not talking about peanuts anymore we're not talking about a few grand here a few grand there we're talking about billions and, and i don't know how much the english premiership's worth across the globe it's probably worth trillions right in in some respects especially 
on in terms of legacy and in terms of the future, when they're around the table bartering, if you forget COVID for a minute, they're going to be saying, okay, these this Saudi these Saudi Arabians that own this team are going to be you know going to be spending this much money, and these Americans that own this team are going to be spending this much money, and this multi 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 millionaire Italian that owns this close, you know, and all that money is just feeding, feeding, feeding this kind of almost um, pyramid scheme that is English football. <laughs> um, do you think that the technology and the kind of weight of decision um, can be in some way swayed by the need to keep that hierarchy? I mean, these things, these are um, incentives that might pull against each other, of course, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, if you need a team to win and the VAR says that the guy was offside or the, the goal technology says that the goal was or wasn't scored, then of course that can pull against it, right? So there is some kind of objectivity here which um, avoids corruption. But the problem is that the objectivity is undermined by the fact that the, um, the, the super data-led VAR machines get it wrong. Yeah, but, but they get it right more often than they get it wrong. And that's why they're, they've been put into play, right. right? I mean, if they were more wrong, if they were, if they were less reliable than human judgment, then we, we wouldn't be using them. Yeah. So they're in the grand scheme of things more reliable. I think, and I think that, that that's probably uncontro uncontroversial. It's the way that they change the game. Yeah. So the way that higher accuracy measurement changes the game. I don't find the goal, uh, the goal scoring technology to be that controversial. You're, you're pointing out a case where it made a mistake, but in the grand scheme of things, it's been very reliable. So I think that that's fine. It also doesn't interrupt the aesthetics or the flow, the flow of play. So I think that that's not such a big deal. Now, what's interesting, the way you guys are describing the VAR stuff is that it changes the strategy, yeah. it interrupts the flow of play, and it brings in, it's not exactly rules that weren't there, but a precision to the rules that people weren't really talking about. So if quarters of both sides, you watch a video, a guy's arm, his elbow is offsides, right? But we would say that he's not offsides. And in, in a kind of sober moment, you and the supporter of the other club can agree that he's on left sides. But now that we have the technology to track and look more precisely at this, then there's a question of, well, how much of him has to be offside? How much of the person has to be offsides for this to count? Is it any atom of the person or is it the majority of the atoms or, or whatever? And that creates a whole new, yeah, yeah. a whole new kind of a question, right? Whereas before we would have happily just let it go, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that's a negative thing. I, yeah. I think for me, it it it, it begs the question um, about what football fans want to be, whether they actually want to be credulous or incredulous. Mm. And um, I still maintain, I still think VAR. I, I, I take on board what you're saying. It's right more often than it's wrong. Um, but I think VAR is neutral. It's an application of a level of precision that we've not had before. And the reason it makes people uncomfortable is because actually maybe we've all been joining in with this lie that that we can all tell ourselves that every decision that a linesman makes with offside, that a referee makes with handball, with um, a really dynamic foul um, that happens in a quick moment that the referee's got to make a split second decision on. There's a, a credulity that we can lend it, lend our sort of tribe to. Mm -hmm. that we can say with some level of chance that we're right, 
that the the referee's against us and he's made a decision against us because he doesn't like us or just because that's that's the nature of what it means to support our club or that actually no that was the right decision because it's benefited us and for once the rules are being applied properly um and and i think maybe there's there's something underneath that where actually football fans might need to realize they need to be comfortable with the fact that they quite like the mystery rather than the precision well i, I yeah. I'm, I'm a credulous idiot and so um, I just want my team to win. I don't care if it's <laughs> quite wrong or indifferent. So there's your answer. I yeah, don't I mean, care what the rules say. There are other, well, you care to a certain degree. Otherwise, it's not, <laughs> it's not the game. But there are other values than precision, mm. right? So VIR probably wins on precision. But I've been saying it doesn't win on aesthetics. Mm -hmm. um, it might not win on how we like to talk about the game. It doesn't necessarily win on making a level playing field. Well, one thing that's been really interesting strategize. One thing that's been really interesting this season is the first time I've actually heard professionals that are um, commentating on football declaring it as entertainment. Like, uh, and it's to do with the fact that there are some teams that are genuinely entertaining, like Leeds United being one of them. Um, where you kind of think it's you flip a coin, they might win, they might lose, but they it, it's fun, it's really fun, yeah. and so um, well, that goes hand in hand with just like taking it as it comes. And you know, there's an old adage in football that like one of the reasons why VAR is really unsuccessful is because there's a kind of thing where it evens itself out over a season. Like mm -hmm. you might get a really crap handful of of, of, um, of things thrown at you, but by the end of the season, you would have struck even with it in some way. Um, but I've seen lots of lots of commentators and lots of kind of like curators of the game say, "Listen, this is entertainment," and I think that COVID's done that because nothing else is going on, and so the people are piled around their TV, going like, "Let's watch this. Let's see what goes on." And and it's the first time I've really looked at football like that. I, I've been willing to be um, bored to tears as long as we get three points. And, and I'm not prepared for that anymore. I, I, it's, it's too much like, you know, PTSD. And I, I, I'm just not, I'm not willing to, to sit through that anymore. And so, so VAR seems like a complete antithesis, antithesis to, to what that stands for. Like, it's not entertaining to see the game pulled apart, like by five other individuals over a computer screen. That's not entertaining, yeah. you know? I mean, there are ways of, of having your cake and eating it too, I think, as well. So in, in the U.S., when you go to the video referee in, in football, but in other sports as well, this costs a timeout. Yeah. You, don't have, you don't have tons of timeouts. <laughs> you don't have timeouts yeah. in football, but you do have substitutions. Yeah. Right? We, we, have a so, lot of, like, we actually have a lot of time. And that's another way the game's adapted. And it feels really American. You know, it's, it used to be you get to the last two minutes of the game and then you take the ball into the corner and you'd be fighting people off like this type of thing. <laughs> now that started at 15 minutes from the end of the game. You right. know, we're 1-0 up and we're going to stand in the corner and we're going to hope that someone comes and hacks your leg away and then we'll kick the ball out. And, and you, people are wasting time for like 20% of the match. It's, yeah. It's insidious. Well, this it's is something amazing. that you could you could legislate with with new regulations as well yeah uh but I, i'm just saying you could charge you could charge or or take away a substitution with the use of var so var basically wouldn't be in the game yeah, yeah. it would be it would be just officials calls but if there's just a completely missed call 
it's definitely worth the substitution to go to VAR on that, right? Mm -hmm. And then in that case, it, it corrects the most egregious calls of the humans. And in those cases, we think, well, it would be good if it could fix it, right? Mm -hmm. But it costs the team something to implement it. Mm -hmm. So it's just not automatically going to VAR all the time. So there's, you don't know if it's going to go to VAR because it depends on whether or not the, the other team or your team wants to force it to go in that direction by giving up a substitution. So in that case, that takes away some of the strategizing around the use of VAR. And it also helps the aesthetics, of course, because it's going to not interrupt the flow of the game. And it's not going to really tell in one way or the other with the credulity aspect, mm -hmm. because you're going to only be calling this in when it's just obvious to everyone who just saw what happened that the guy was or wasn't offsides. Mm -hmm. And the VR is just confirming what we as spectators already knew anyway, but the official clearly got wrong rather than trying to give a more precise measurement about elbows, for example. Yeah, sure. I think that fits. I think that fits definitely a lot more of, of what most football fans would feel comfortable with. But again, like I almost feel like um, the things that we speak about and the things that we talk about, the things that enter into our folklore um, and the sort of the mythos of football are generally centered around injustice. So the hand of God. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, even non-football fans know what the hand yeah, of God yeah, is yeah. Um, as this injustice. In the mythos of Leeds fans, Leeds fans sing at the top of their voices, we are the champions of Europe. We haven't been the champions of Europe. We should have been, but there was a match-fixing scandal and some absolutely unjust calls from a referee in the game that we should have made us the champions of Europe. Mm. Um, and so, so that's part of the mythos of Leeds. I'm sure every single club has that. There's, you know, another thing that we'll be talking about um, for for a long time, and um, and it comes up every single clip show there is now is the goal that um, went in when a beach ball somehow inexplicably made its way onto the pitch and a ball ricocheted off the beach ball oh, went in yeah. and the team and the team won by a goal <laughs> and it's like you're right you can't legislate for a beach ball but but it's it's like is there is there something about that that actually says why don't we just stop this messing around of of these degrees of of precision and mm. sterilization in some ways and actually just let's realize what we're all here for mm. which is for shared storytelling and, and and actually our most powerful stories our mythos for those of us that are, are interested and sort of captivated by football is where injustice happens i don't know it, it, yeah really i mean but i don't think you want to encourage the injustice just to have the the mythos around the club so and I think that if you had a, a soft touch VAR kind of solution or something that, that a team had to pony up something for to use, hmm. I think that's a good compromise because I mean, this still includes like, it might, so imagine a situation where it's early in the match is a bad call. You could use your substitution to call the VAR in, but you decide it doesn't matter. At this point, it's not worth it. Uh, I, I want to use these substitutions later on. These guys that I find the substitute are tired because of previous matches. I have a strategy here. Turns out, later on, those guys are playing well, 
had a lot of stamina for some reason, don't need to use the substitutions, and had you challenged that, that would have made the difference in the game. Mm. Yeah. The match. <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's something to talk about here already. And it's yeah. a judgment call of a person. Right. Mm. It's a coaching kind of situation. And you can still complain about what would have happened if your idiot manager had done something differently. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I think the the situations where VAR, I mean, in these cases, ideally, it would only come in in those kinds of extreme injustice cases that we actually don't really want to be a part of the game. Yes, it's good to talk about them later on, but we wouldn't want to encourage them just to have something to talk about. If we did, why not pass out beach balls at every match just to see if one of them ends up on the pitch? Why not encourage people to streak occasionally across the match just to see what that does? We don't do this because we want to have a relatively level playing field for the, for the teams when they go out there, right? And I think when something does happen and other things will inevitably still happen, then that's something to talk about. But the VAR, when it has a light touch kind of a use, you know, mm. that would that would improve things, make things fairer, still give us something to bitch about later on mm. in the pub without necessarily ruining the game or mm. being as intrusive as it is now. Yeah. So when I told Sai that we were going to be talking to you, I said to him, can you think of any really interesting original themes that you want to talk about? And... Um, he said, I want to talk about COVID. He said, <laughs> and, and, and I said, okay, fair enough. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dip out of that bit and I'm just going to have a bit of a lie down. But he's, he, it's something we've kind of discussed philosophically. Sorry, do you want to broach that question about managers and, and players? Sorry, players, players, players. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, here we go. I, I had a, he's I got had early a onset dementia. I'm almost positive. Do I remember having this conversation? <laughs> um, no, for me, something really interesting happened midway through lockdown one. When, you know, all the graphs that we've been receiving, which which show the exponential growth of cases. Mm. Um, and there's that, that little dotted line that says, prior to this, mass testing wasn't available. Mm. I'm, I'm fascinated by that because prior to that, dotted line where it says from this time on mass testing was available for quite a period of time our footballers were being tested regularly so that they could get back out and play football i think it's worth saying a lot of them came back have a positive as well. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like the, the, the testing the testing worked i mean you, you could argue that they were the guinea pigs i don't think that was the, the thinking behind it um what i found interesting was that at the time there wasn't mass testing for NHS members of staff. There mm. wasn't mass testing for educators who were still providing face-to-face -face, um, teaching for, for vulnerable children and key workers. But there was testing in a mass sense available for millionaire teenagers who played on a green uh, square of grass every, every week. And I just, I just wondered kind of philosophically what your, your, your thoughts are, what that raises with you. Because for me, I, I, I felt like it, it just, it, it, my head just blew up when I, I came to that realisation. And, and every time I look at that graph, that's all I can think of. That at this time, these elites were given the priority testing. Yeah. So let me try to 
think about how that could ever be okay. So, <laughs> so I mean, this is something that you do in philosophy sometimes. You try to be as charitable to your opponent as possible. And there is a charitable story to tell here. Whether it stands up, I'm not sure. It might be, so mass testing wasn't available. We only have a limited number of tests to give to people, right? And you've named NHS workers and teachers and footballers. Let's take these three groups. If the testing is intended to save the individuals who are being tested to save their lives, right? Rather than finding out whether or not it's okay for them to go back to work. These are two different kinds of things. Football generates a lot of money. Mm. If it's true that it's most important financially, economically for them to go back to work over teachers, let's say, and neither one is going to die because the teachers are relatively young and the footballers are relatively young. The testing isn't to save their lives. It's just to see if they're infected and if they're going to infect others because they're going to be back into the kind of social sphere. Then it might not be so objectionable that we basically what we want to do is we want to test those workers that we're going to put back out there socially because they're going to be mixing around and we test not those workers who we think are most vulnerable to dying from COVID, but those that we have the best economic case for putting back into the into society circulating as workers. Now, even under that charitable interpretation, it's hard to see how NHS workers don't come out as more important than footballers. Um, partly because uh, they're there to save other lives, but also because we do know that the greater exposure to viral loads that you have, the more likely that you have severe COVID and, and possibly die as well. So when younger people have died, in many cases, they have been healthcare workers because they've been exposed to very high viral loads. So this whole idea that testing is there to uh, help the economy rather than save the life of the person being tested isn't in doesn't seem like it's necessarily true in the case of NHS workers, right? Mm. Um, but this might be what people were thinking. Maybe people were thinking that the most economically important sector was football and that testing is there to uh, see if it's safe for these people to circulate, but not necessarily to save their lives. That would have been then, I think, a, a mistake because the NHS is a counterexample to that. Mm. Um, because it seems more economically, however you want to look at it, it seemed more economically important uh, right now. It also seems like it would have perhaps been saving NHS workers' lives. Teachers, you know, as a, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are teachers, I'm a teacher. Um, the case could be made maybe along economic lines um, against us and in favor of the footballers, especially because we can still do what we do uh, to a certain degree, although not as well, over the internet. Um, it's easier as the students get older, of course, but uh, you can't play a football match over the internet. And there's also something to be said for inspiring the troops, right? <laughs> so, 
you know, if everyone can keep their morale up, then people can endure lockdown longer. If people can endure lockdown longer because they're able to watch matches, then that saves lives too. Well, you know, I think, you know, th th there are issues around that. Like domestic violence went through the roof when football was suspended full stop. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to blame football. I think that's cultural and there's something going on there to do with the relationship between alcohol and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. mm, interesting. Um, so, Simon. For, for me, I guess, I guess it, it leads to... One of the things that we've spent a lot of time looking at is is how, in a lot of ways, Stu and I have come to the conclusion that football has replaced Christianity as the main religion um, mm. in in our country. Um, Stu very eloquently um, puts it puts it in terms of, you know, the poor people spending their paychecks lining up around the street once a week to enter into their churches to pay devotion to their um, the, the high priests of their silly God, uniforms. Then, yeah, dressed in silly uniforms, um, buying all the merchandise they can. All fundamentally um, believing in the same thing, yet violently opposing each other. In inculcating um, their their children. faith into their children. Um, uh, you know, all those sort of things. So what's really interesting is that you mentioned <laughs> there about rallying the troops. And it, it's, it's, you know, I'll go back to the, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Maybe football now. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe that maybe that was part of it. That it, it's just I think when when history looks back on 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 2020, I I think that that little dotted line will become more and more important in in some mm -hmm. ways. I think it was an interesting delineation between the fact that it's testing, isn't it? So what you're testing is 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 how how ready this person is to go back into some level of society and social engagement. It's not we're not talking about the footballers being given priority vaccines. I right. think that that would have been an interesting, a different scandal in, in a different way. Yeah. If somebody were saying, "Well, you know, got to get out. that one's not quite past muster. Let's keep the troops happy. Let's give all the these these nineteen year olds the vaccines, whilst eight year olds are still passing away in in care homes, you know, um, through through COVID." But but yeah, it, it for me it, it it raised a really interesting question over the haves and the haves nots in 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 society in some ways, and and actually. I think particularly when you have existential crises of which COVID is one, it, it's, it's a really useful measuring stick for uh, gauging where society is at actually, because yeah. the lowest common denominators hit. And so there was this, this incredible rush where we, we've got to get the professional sports back, back, back on going. And I think I was one of the people that was like, yeah, of course. And then afterwards I sort of thought, wait a minute, but quite a lot of NHS staff have died um, and 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 quite a lot of um, other areas of society have been completely and utterly neglected. Yeah. Why is that? And it, it's a sort of and maybe maybe it is that was, was it like the sort of the opiate yeah. of the masses. But um, I mean, I do think that professional sport does something to keep people. I mean, rallying the troops, keeping your morale up. I do think that's important. How long do you think the first, second, or current lockdowns would last, or how do you think they would go if Netflix didn't exist? <laughs> <laughs> or if broadband went out yeah. i mean people would lose their minds yeah right so and and you can say like i mean giving to netflix workers over teachers yeah i mean that seems also egregious but then you think well hold on i mean if that's if that's keeping people indoors mm. then 
that's that is that can be important. So you have to kind of look at how these things function a little bit. Just, I mean, but I do think that COVID really has laid bare where our uh, interests lie and how mm -hmm. where our priorities are. A friend of mine was talking about the U.S. and he said, you know, Americans are obsessed with superhero movies and like yeah, yeah, yeah. being heroes and saving people's lives and stuff. But they have an opportunity now to save lives by not going out of their house. That's how you can be Captain yeah. America or whatever. You just have to sit inside and watch Netflix and buy yourself a PlayStation and <laughs> then you're not killing people, but they won't do that. Yeah, yeah. They refuse to do that in the name of freedom or something like this, but they, they go out and they're the baddies. They don't realize it, but they're, <laughs> they're the baddies. They're the people who are killing people. So they're, they're taking, they're playing the wrong role in their own superhero movie, I think. So uh, just listening to your talk, obviously something like a global pandemic for a philosopher obviously has thrown up a few issues for you. And I don't just mean because scratching around trying to make a living. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like coming to terms with like big, big ideas and th things, I guess, that you um, are talking to your students about. And, uh, and I, I guess it's kind of like quite invasive on your professional life right now. What, what do you make of the moral stances and the kind of global response to, to the pandemic in terms of how does it sit with you philosophically? Do you disgusted by it? Are you, are you kind of, like you said a second ago, you trying to trying to find the charitable interpretation of it or how do you sit with it? Well, I think um, one thing that it shows is, is what I just mentioned that people have, are pretty self-interested. Um, yeah, you didn't need a pandemic for that, though, did you? <laughs> no, but it really it really shows it because they have a real chance to make a yeah. difference. Right. So in lots of our lives, we don't have a chance to really do much of consequence. But in this case, you you can really make a difference. And what this same friend of mine pointed out was that people are really reticent to stay inside. They're really reticent to wear masks in the U.S. But when it comes time to get a vaccine. Yeah they're trampling over the top of each other to get the vaccine because yeah, that protects yeah. them, yeah, yeah. right? The masks staying inside, I well, mean, well, the masks are symbolic, aren't it. they? The masks are purely symbolic in that thing of, do you care about the people around you? Like you don't wear a mask yeah. for yourself. Um, I think what's interesting well, is- Well, they help yourself a little. I think they help the wearer slightly, but yeah. they're primarily for other people. Do you find that um, this idea of altruism is more effective if you ask people to, to, to do something as opposed to nothing? Because that's, that's what people are being asked to do. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting thing. So in philosophy, you have this action-omission distinction, right? Okay. and people tend to attach more weight to actions. So if it was push this button to save someone versus sit here to <laughs> save someone, it's much easier to push the button to save someone. Yeah. Right. And so that that's part of the psychology of it. But I don't think that that necessarily changes the morality of it. Mm. I think one of the lessons to draw from the fact that people are less altruistic than some would have us believe is that we should design our institutions and society and regulations um, with this in mind. So we should try to use people's own interests to incentivize them to do things for the common good. And we yeah. shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that people are going to behave in altruistic ways. No. Um, we should try to give them incentives for themselves to behave in such ways. Of course, there are situations when the stakes are relatively low where people do behave quite altruistically. But when the stakes are 
high, like mm. a global pandemic, mm. that's pretty high. People are shits, I think. <laughs> and and so listen, let's be honest, like other people have just let us down terribly. What about what about the respective governments? Well, uh, I think it's quite interesting when you look at the uh, number of infections in the US and where there's a curve, which is where the Biden administration comes in. Obviously, this curve actually represents the rollout of the vaccines um, and the end of winter to a certain degree. But of course, Trump was uh, a travesty for the US based on the amount of healthcare that we have. and the wealth that we have yeah. compared to the deaths that we have, the death rates and the infection rates, it's the worst in the world, really. The UK, I'm not a Boris fan, but I have to say they made mistakes in the beginning, especially yeah. by thinking that they might go for this kind of herd immunity strategy up front. <clears throat> and they've not had very clear messaging going through. So they've been inconsistent or confusing and changed the way that we kind of think about and understand the restrictions a number of times. But they've done a good job with vaccinations and they've done a decent job before vaccines at controlling it, Um, especially because they got off on the wrong foot in the beginning. So they, they did such a bad job in the beginning, but they kind of saw it back a little bit uh, as they went through. So they've definitely done an amazing job on vaccine provisions, mm. a decent job at catching up on their pretty bad blunder in the beginning. Mm. So I give the British government a C, I guess. The US gets an F. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, the, and Europe has done a pretty damn good job. Obviously, like, like Italy uh, got caught off guard in the, in the beginning. Um, and I think Spain to a certain extent as well, but they've recovered and did a very good job of controlling it, but they're, they are flubbing the vaccine a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, I mean, this is pretty far from football now, but uh, I think that the EU's response to the AstraZeneca vaccine is ridiculous yeah, and yeah, just yeah. morally bankrupt. It's a kind of a political move. So the, when you look at the rates, the base rate of blood clotting in the general population compared to people who have had the vaccine, there's no difference. No. So it's like saying that the vaccine causes people to go to McDonald's <laughs> because many people after getting the vaccine go to McDonald's. There's no causal evidence no. of the blood clotting. There's no greater incidence of blood clotting amongst people who have had the, the vaccine. So there's no reason to believe that it's in any way linked. No. And yet they've banded together to say they're going to to suspend AstraZeneca vaccinations. And that, I think, is really, and they say that they're doing this in order to help protect public perception around the safety of vaccines. Well, here's a way to protect public perception around the safety of vaccines. Don't start telling people about these blood clots when you have no evidence that they're causing any problems. And don't suspend the use when you have no evidence that there are any problems, right? That's what makes people skittish about it. Now mm. people in in Britain are worried about AstraZeneca when they have no reason to be. Mm. So that's a that was a bad move, I think, mm. on the EU's part when it comes to vaccinations. And it's a bad move to not use these vaccines that they have available to them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Even if it did cause the blood clots, you have to weigh these things against yeah, each other. Course, yeah. I would take it even if I knew that it did cause blood clots in a low enough proportion of people, 
you know, if, if that cost is lower than the cost of getting COVID, then you should still take the vaccine. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. As you just said, we've been pretty wildly away from football. Um, <laughs> yeah. Simon, is there anything else you would like to ask Benjamin while we have him with us? Yeah, I thought we, we've got sort of, we've got nine minutes, haven't we, before we, uh, be, be, before Zoom cuts us off again. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, I, I guess for me, like, there, there's this this big question in, in and around. It still sits with that sort of credulity thing, um, and 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 the vaccines is is case in point about that. Um, keyboard warriors, Google sort of experts who have somehow um, fallen foul of this this sort of alternative truths uh, and and all of this sort of side thing. So it may it. it it makes me worried um, and it, it, it concerns me that the Dunning-Kruger effect is like is being just absolutely shown in terms of people with a very little bit of knowledge showing having absolute strength of conviction. Whereas those who are a bit further down, um, who have more knowledge, who feel like actually there's, there's so you've much just, I don't know. You've just stripped Yates of all of the poetry. <laughs> Carry on. That's excoriating. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess in some ways it, it's it's looking at that. W- one of the things that I was I was thinking about, particularly around around football and and, and around decision making in football, is I, I kind of wanted to chat to you just just a little bit about um, it's still around that sort of credulity and 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 actually whether or not there's something philosophically attractive as a human being that we have that draws us to unanswerables. So we, we actually interviewed a statistical philosopher, this, this guy called Eust, who he, he did not like what he described as continental philosophy. No, no, no. I came in with all kinds of amazing Morality and that's so he, 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 he very coldly um, sort of just, just said, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in that at all. And that was a full stop for you for about half he's, an hour. He's a um, he's actually he's a philosopher in Amsterdam, isn't it? At yeah. The University of Amsterdam. His name's Joost van der Leesch. Yeah. And he's okay. a, he, he's a, he's a, he he's now an expert in kind of like data analysis and the philosophical sl- philosophical slant on how you use data. And, and, right. and yeah, it's sort of it, it's led me to this point. Like actually, I think our conversation though has taken us away from football. It, it's it's sort of football is is part of this as as well in terms of what we're talking about is is this human condition. I, I've got this suspicion that actually there's something hugely attractive as a species that we find mystery, and we and and I think there are ways in which we sometimes almost subconsciously go for and find ways to distort clear facts, clear correlations to almost exist in this foggy netherworld uh, and i don't know it, that exists in football <laughs> that exists in vaccines that exists i just wonder if there's something yeah. that, 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 that if that where, where you sit on that and, and your sort of feelings around that yeah well i mean there's a this, this is a big question it covers a lot <laughs> of things right um i think you know, when I was talking before about if we knew all of the facts with certainty about all of the teams and all the conditions under which they play, we know who would win and there would be no point in playing in playing the match. Right. And so the uncertainty that we have because we don't know these things is what makes watching the match fun. And so we do like uncertainty. We are drawn to it a little bit for sure. 
Um, and sometimes we're drawn to it a lot. I mean, some of the things that attract people to religion is the mystery and the kind of enigma of religion. Um, other people are quite rational in their religion, actually. So you don't have to be drawn to mystery in order to be religious. But I think um, for many people, that's the core of the interest as well. Um, I think that we can't ever answer all the questions that we have. There are certain things that we can't know. There are certain mysteries that will always remain. And so, um, and, you know, I'm sure used as a, as a statistical philosopher knows that there are unanswerable questions even what in What did he say about, um, he said something about, he, he's, he's a big fan of probability. And he mm -hmm. said, basically probability clears up all life's problems. Is there a God? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he uses the term prevision. So um, <laughs> rather, than, rather than talking about predicting the future, he yeah. used the term prevision. So using probability to say, uh, particularly normal distributions in, in a lot of ways, say actually th there's a very high, high degree chance that this will be the outcome. Yeah. Therefore, yep. this is what we base our, our, our thinking on. I think with a lot of social issues, um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think that when we're trying to socially plan societies, uh, when we're trying to think, make ethical decisions, um, we have a lot of information that we sh can and should use to make these decisions. It doesn't mean that the world is fundamentally um, deterministic at the most basic level. We know from quantum mechanics that the world is probably indeterministic at the most basic level. Uh, so there is some randomness there. How that translates into how we live our own lives, how it translates from the kind of quantum level to the macro level is a, is a complicated question that physicists and, and philosophers are working on now. It's not clear that randomness at that fundamental level would do something like preserve free will or anything like this. It could just be that our choices are made randomly, which isn't any better than uh, if they're determined, right? So yeah, uh, I think, I think that at, at, as a, at the level of ethics and social planning, we do have a lot of information we should take into account, but the world is far from deterministic. And I think philosophically, there are always going to be questions that, that we can raise and that we can ask. And, and is, is, is this the, I, I think of football in particular, is it the playground of the apex predator? In that we, we're, we're, not being, we're not being hunted we're, we're not being, you know, we're not, our, our, our gene isn't at, at risk of, of becoming extinct unless we do it ourselves. And yeah. so actually, have we got the freedom to be able to explore mystery? I think so. I mean, it's a, it's a form of play, really. It's a form of play of, of societies that are, are doing well. And it's, I mean, that's what, that's what VAR ruins in many ways is that mystery. Um, we don't, and, and I mean, you know, when, when I was talking about the practical solution to VAR, what's interesting about that solution is that that doesn't do anything to the mystery. Because if everyone saw that the guy's offside and then you use your substitution to pull in the VAR to confirm what everyone knows, there's no loss of mystery there. Everyone already knew it. But yeah. when it's so close that you can't see it and you don't want to use that substitution because you don't think that that's worth it, now there's still the mystery there. Ben, I, you've, you've got to get to the patent office tomorrow. <laughs> because because I'm, I'm pretty certain 
you've actually just solved the biggest debate in football at the moment yeah. because it's the tennis I, thing, I can't find a floor thing. in what I can't find a floor in what you're saying here actually yeah yeah it, it's the tennis thing it's what they introduced in tennis isn't it is that right where you kind of have a certain amount of I'm going to debate that and I mean it's lose, the same you have lose, it that's it it's yeah. gone yeah 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 get yourself down the patent office Maybe that was a 1990s thing. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the patent office still exists. Right, um, well, Benjamin, I, I would like to say to you, um, despite my seemingly disparaging remarks about your weight at the beginning of this podcast, um, I don't mean any of it. And you're definitely the best-looking philosopher we know, and we well, know all philosophers. One of the, yeah, one of the few. <laughs> so it's been an absolute delight to speak to you. I would, I would like it if we could speak to you relatively regularly, although I, I understand you're trying to hold down a, a serious relationship, so that might not be, <laughs> that might not be able to be done. But um, I will harass and harangue you in the future about just coming on and talking about this stuff, because I think it's important that we're talking about football, but one of the things that excites us about philosophy is that it does reach out into the, the wider understanding of what goes on in the world and uh, yeah it's been amazing to talk to you it's been amazing to see you thank you very much yeah well thanks and, for um, having me on I'm, yeah. I'm happy to come back whenever it's always, see you always tomorrow. a pleasure <laughs> <laughs> um, fantastic okay um, uh, until we see you next time farewell alright thank you very one, much guys it's great to chat to you it is you too bye bye bye